welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, Here's Tony. Welcome back to episode number 34 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. This time I want to talk about Article 1, Section 13 of the Michigan Constitution. Conduct of suits in person or by counsel. A suitor in any court of this state has the right to prosecute or defend his suit either in his own proper person or by an attorney. This Section 13 is very similar to the same right we hold under the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution. In Michigan, because of this constitutional protection, we have the right to represent ourselves in both a civil and in a criminal trial. Throughout these two podcasts, we're going to review when individuals have the right to proceed to a criminal trial without the assistance of an attorney. The right to present a defense under this article section is considered to be a fundamental right, but it is not absolute. This means an accused person must comply with established rules of evidence, rules of criminal procedure, and general courtroom decorum. This will help to ensure both fairness and reliability in whatever the judge or jury verdict might entail. Ultimately, we're going to discuss how a trial court judge has the final discretion to determine whether or not to allow a criminal defendant to represent himself in court. We'll talk about what those requirements are to grant what's commonly referred to as improper, or that's Latin for in one's own person, to act as their own attorney. But first, your spoonful of legalese. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in Michigan's Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. It is for entertainment purposes only. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law. I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post this podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. In this first case, we're going to discuss People v. Henley, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1969, to get the ball rolling. Now, I have to tell you that with some of these cases, the fact patterns are really quite lengthy. But I'm going to include them throughout and will rarely edit them down so that you can get the idea of what all the judge has to go through, but also address with the defendant before allowing someone to represent themselves in proper person. 
Also, I may just go by the common term improper, and if I do, know that improper means improper person, per our Michigan Constitution. Defendant Henley was charged with assault with intent to commit rape and attempt to procure an act of gross indecency between male and female persons. An attorney was assigned by the court to represent Mr. Henley, and a preliminary examination was conducted. The judge ordered the prosecutor to file a petition for a sanity hearing. Three physicians examined the defendant and reported to the court that defendant Henley was not psychotic, was free from mental defects, was able to understand the charges pending against him, and was able to assist counsel in his defense. Sometime after the psychiatric evaluation, Mr. Henley notified the judge that he wanted to hire his own attorney, did not want his court-appointed attorney, and therefore the judge allowed the appointed attorney to withdraw from Mr. Henley's case. However, three months later, when the trial was set to begin, Mr. Henley still hadn't hired an attorney, so a new attorney was appointed to him. Unclear in the fact pattern why, but not relevant, a mistrial was declared and Henley requested that this second court-appointed attorney be discharged from the case. The court obliged his request. The judge then orders another competency hearing for Mr. Henley. But the new doctors reported the same findings as the previous doctors. Defendant Henley was competent to stand trial. This time, Defendant Henley did hire an attorney, and this attorney remained with the defendant throughout the balance of the proceedings of the subsequent case. The trial took approximately six days before the jury returned with a guilty verdict on both counts. Now, it should be noted that throughout the entire trial, the record indicated Defendant Henley continually interrupted the trial judge, insisted on instructing his attorney in very loud tones so that members of the jury could hear what he was saying. He interrupted the testimony of various witnesses. He conducted oratorical speeches directed to the jury protesting his innocence. And Henley insisted that he was being deprived of his constitutional rights. At other times, he would direct remarks to the spectator sitting in the rear of the courtroom contending that his rights were being violated and requested someone in the audience to send news reporters of various organizations to come see him. After one court recess, the defendant, while in a jail cell adjacent to the courtroom, removed all of his clothing and refused to come out for the further proceedings. After the trial was well underway, the defendant advised the court that he had fired his attorney and was going to represent himself. The court advised the defendant to sit down and instructed the defense counsel to continue with the trial. On many occasions thereafter, the defendant advised the court that he desired to represent himself and did not wish his attorney speaking on his behalf. Therefore, the issue that the Michigan Supreme Court had to tackle was, did the trial court judge err? when he refused to allow the defendant to fire his third attorney and proceed with the trial representing himself. The Michigan Court of Appeals said no, the judge did not err in refusing to let defendant Henley fire his attorney and represent himself. The Supreme said that the defendant announced the firing of his attorney only after the trial was well underway. It was this quote-unquote well underway part that, that our highest court in the state had latched onto. The justices said that to allow a criminal defendant the opportunity to fire his attorney and attempt to represent himself once a trial was well underway 
would surely invite into regular practice the obstruction of criminal justice by a calculated manufacture of a new hindrance, specifically the continual firing of one's own attorney. When a defendant is charged with a crime, the defendant has an absolute right to go to trial without an attorney and conduct his own defense. However, that's before trial has begun. It then becomes a qualified right, not an absolute right to represent yourself once your trial is well underway. So maybe said another way, the Michigan Supreme Court makes the sweeping ruling that when a defendant moves to dismiss his attorney and represent himself after the trial is well underway, the defendant's right to do this is a qualified right, and it will be left to the judge's discretion whether to permit it or not. And for that reason, the Michigan Supreme Court ruled against defendant Henley and allowed his conviction to remain. Our next case, People v. Stevens, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1976, deals with a defendant who seeks to represent himself but not at trial. Instead, he wants to represent himself during an appeal to a higher court like a Court of Appeals or our state Supreme Court. So here's what's going on. November 13th, 1973, defendant Stevens was charged with armed robbery of a jewelry store. His defense attorney argued that his client didn't have the mental facilities to knowingly rob the store as he was overcome by the use of drugs. The testimony offered to support this intoxication defense came from defendant Stevens himself. He told the jury he had a spoon of cocaine at 8.30 a.m. on the morning in question and an additional dose later that same morning. I, I like how the court classy says a a second dose an additional dose he he didn't he didn't do another hit no 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 he had an additional dose later that same morning now defendant stevens went on to testify that he was unable to remember anything from the time of his last injection until the arrest in contrast to defendant Stevens' testimony, his two victims of the crime had testified that they believed defendant Stevens did not appear to be under the influence of alcohol or narcotics at the time of the robbery. To the contrary, he was described by these victims as being very polite to them, very alert, and quite coherent. The Michigan Court of Appeals begins their analysis by noting the right of a criminal defendant to defend himself at trial, you know, because of our Article 1, Section 13 of the Michigan Constitution. They noted that to invoke the right to represent oneself, the defendant must intelligently and voluntarily abandon his right to counsel. The court goes on to say, there seems to be no meaningful distinction that can be drawn between the right to represent oneself at a trial level and a right to submit an appellate brief to a higher court. So maybe said more clearly, the Court of Appeals agrees that the right to represent oneself means the right to represent yourself at any level of the court process. And the Court of Appeals looked to the actions taken by Defendant Stevens and by all rights, they contended Mr. Stevens not only wanted to represent himself at, a, at an appellate level, he took certain actions which one would do if they had an attorney acting on their behalf. For example, Defendant Stevens filed his claim of appeal. He requested the lower court records and transcript along with the post-conviction motion. 
This is something an attorney typically would do for a client, yet Mr. Stevens did all this on his own. More so, he filed an affidavit claiming the right to represent himself on appeal. This, the Court of Appeals found, indicated the defendant voluntarily waived his right to appointed appellate counsel. And for those reasons, the court held that not only can an individual represent themselves in higher court, not just at the trial court level, but this defendant here voluntarily and intelligently desired to waive his right to counsel. Our next case of People v. Anderson, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1976, is a landmark Michigan Supreme Court case, specifically related to the idea of representing oneself in court. Almost every case that I'm going to discuss regarding Article 1, Section 13, here and after, is going to cite this Michigan Supreme Court case of Anderson that we're about to talk about. The reason being... For the first time, the Michigan Supreme Court gives trial judges a roadmap as to how they could talk to a defendant who wishes to represent himself or herself at trial. So, what's going on in this case? Technically, this is a case which has two different defendants from two entirely separate cases. I think the main reason why the Michigan Supremes rolled these two cases into one and issued a ruling is because the cases were constantly getting overturned left and right regarding whether the defendant properly understood and comprehended the severity of representing himself at trial. So, defendant number one, Mr. Anderson, for whom this case is titled. He was charged with armed robbery. When the trial was held, the jury returned a verdict of guilty, and Anderson was sentenced to 7 to 20 years of prison time. On the first day of Defendant Anderson's trial, but prior to jury selection, Defendant Anderson replied as follows to the court's inquiry as to whether he wished to represent himself. And he said, quote, yes, not at this time. I wish to represent myself and have a little more time to get affiliated with the case. And, and, that, and that's, that is his quote. That's his sentence. That's, that's what the uh, Michigan Supremes are going to kind of hinge their decision on. The judge in Mr. Anderson's trial did not allow the defendant Mr. Anderson, to represent himself, likely because of the conversation he had with Mr. Anderson on the record. From the trial transcript, the Michigan Supreme Court could tell it did not appear that Mr. Anderson really understood or was giving answers to indicate that he understood what was being asked of him, nor what was really happening as it related to his criminal charge. Mr. Anderson subsequently appealed his case to the Michigan Court of Appeals, alleging his right to represent himself per Article 1, Section 13 of the Michigan Constitution had been violated. The Court of Appeals agreed and overturned his conviction, ordering the lower court to retry Mr. Anderson with his own attorney. Okay, let's put a pin in that and move on then to, to the next case that was rolled into this Anderson court opinion, and that's defendant number two, a fellow by the name of Mr. Overby, and he was also charged with armed robbery. But again, I, I want to make very, very clear that this case has nothing to do with Mr. Anderson's case. It is pure coincidence that we're talking about two defendants both being charged with armed robbery. So here in Mr. Overby's case, 
He was also charged with assault with intent to commit murder. The jury convicted Mr. Overby on both counts, and he was sentenced to serve 15 to 30 years in prison for each of the charges, and they were to be served concurrently. Quick sidebar. Don't confuse concurrent sentences with consecutive sentences. With concurrent sentences, you're getting credit for all the convictions at the same time. So if you're sentenced to assault, which is one particular charge and, and, and conviction, as well as carjacking, it being its own charge and subsequent conviction. If you get sentenced to five years, which will run concurrently, then every day that you're in jail counts towards both the assault and the carjacking conviction. On the other hand, if you're sentenced to 15 to 30 years to serve consecutively, what that means is you first have to serve the 15 to 30 years on the robbery conviction. Then after that amount of time, you will then next begin serving another 15 to 30 years for the assault with intent to murder. If you ever get convicted of multiple crimes, my dear listeners, you very much want your sentences for those crimes to run concurrently. Then you're doing 15 to 30 years on both at the exact same time, not one and then another. Okay, but back to defendant Overby's case. During jury selection and after Overby had expressed certain reasons for his dissatisfaction with his court-appointed attorney, defendant Overby addressed the court, he specifically quoted Article 1, Section 13 of the Michigan Constitution, and requested permission to defend himself. The judge told Defendant Overby his court-appointed attorney was a very competent attorney, and Defendant Overby wasn't entitled to counsel of his own personal picking when asking for a court-appointed attorney. Thus, the judge denied Overby's request to represent himself in his own trial. But this time, the Court of Appeals ruled against the defendant and said the trial court was correct in denying this request. Because of these two specific cases, and, and this is pure conjecture on my part, but but I but I but I like I, I think this is a, a, a logical conclusion to make. The Michigan Supreme Court, they stepped in and they overturned both charges and gave us, or excuse me, they overturned both cases and gave us a roadmap on how to determine when to grant a defendant the right to represent himself at trial. But in our case at hand, the Michigan Supreme Court flip-flopped the outcomes on these two cases. In the case where the Michigan Court of Appeals believed that the defendant should have had the uh, opportunity to represent himself at trial, the Michigan Supreme Court said, no, he shouldn't have had that uh, that allocation, that, that allowance. But then again, in, in the second case with Overby, where the uh, Michigan Court of Appeals said that Overby wasn't allowed to represent himself at trial, the Supreme said, oh, yes, he should have been allowed. So what gives? Well, to begin... This 1976 Michigan Supreme Court referred back to the 1969 Henley case we discussed at the top of the podcast. They note their earlier brethren held where a defendant moves to dismiss his attorney and represent himself after the trial was well underway. Michigan law makes it permissive for a judge to grant or deny the defendant's request based on the judge's own discretion. But that's when the trial is well underway. What about before the trial begins? Then how does a judge determine whether to allow the defendant to represent himself? 
The Michigan Supreme Court denotes the three requirements which must be met, and they are as follows. First, the request must be unequivocal. The value of this first requirement, our Michigan Supremes noted, was that it will stop any frivolous appeal by a defendant who tries to undo any adverse outcomes simply because he was his own attorney and lost the case. (laughs) Essentially, he can't request to be his own attorney, lose the trial, and then try to appeal the guilty verdict by arguing ineffective counsel. No, 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 no. What the justices are telling us is he who represents himself at trial has a fool for a client. Second, once the defendant has unequivocally declared his desire to proceed pro se, the trial court must determine whether defendant is asserting his right knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily. The goal with this requirement is to ensure that the trial judge makes the defendant fully aware of the dangers and disadvantages of self-representation. The record must establish that the defendant knows what he is doing and his choice is made with eyes wide open. A defendant's competence is a pertinent consideration in making this determination. And by competence, we don't mean legal competence, but instead mental competence. If the fellow doesn't know what day it is, where he is, what he's doing, if if he doesn't have all of his mental faculties about him, the judge is not to let the defendant represent himself. Look, lots and lots and lots of non-lawyers represent themselves in court every single day. That's the basis of small claims court, like what you might see on Judge Judy. That's not what we're talking about here. Not having legal competence in representing yourself is not a barrier to exercising your right to self-representation. But lacking true, legitimate mental facilities, that will be a barrier to self-representation. The final requirement is that the trial judge determine that the defendant's acting as his own counsel will not disrupt, unduly inconvenience, nor burden the court and the administration of the court's business. The Michigan Supreme Court is telling us it is up to the trial judge to decide whether or not acting as your own attorney will disrupt, unduly inconvenience, or otherwise burden the court and its administration of court business. If the judge believes it will neither inconvenience, disrupt, or otherwise burden the trial process, then have at it and fire your attorney at will. But this is going to be left to the trial court judge's discretion. This Anderson case is a watershed case for how judges are to determine whether a defendant can represent himself or herself at trial. All cases we discuss for the balance of this article's section is going to come back to these three requirements. And the reason why this doesn't end our conversation is because this case eventually evolves into more while addressing other unique fact patterns and situations. But at the end of the day, you're going to hear, quote-unquote, the three Anderson requirements over and over and over. And what we'll be talking about is this case that we just wrapped up now. Our next case, People v. Hayes, a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1984, is intriguing because it starts to show how defendants can try and game the system for their own benefit. This is a really, really long fact pattern, but reading it in its entirety is crucial for you to see where and how defendant Hayes tried to game the criminal justice system. So, settle in, kiddies. Here we go. 
On November 12th, 1978, two state troopers were called to the defendant's trailer home. They were met outside by Bobby Kelly's brother, who informed the troopers that his sister, Bobby Kelly, lay dead inside. Once inside, the troopers encountered Bobby Kelly's parents and Defendant Hayes. According to one of the troopers, Defendant Hayes seemed relatively calm. However, the defendant's speech was not always understandable, and Hayes occasionally spoke as to what he referred to as spirits who were not in the room. When one of the troopers asked Defendant Hayes what happened to Bobby, well, the defendant allegedly responded, quote, I did it. I think it was on Thursday. The policeman gave Defendant Hayes his Miranda warning and arrested him. During the ride to the state police post, Defendant instructed the troopers to tell the media that he killed Bobby. Prior to trial and upon stipulation, Defendant was ordered committed to the Center for Forensic Psychiatry to determine whether he was competent to stand trial and to the extent of his criminal responsibility due to the possibility of mel mental illness at the time of the alleged crime. Defendant Hayes met with the Forensic Center staff psychologist on February 7th, 1979. The doctor testified at the initial pretrial competency hearing that Defendant Hayes failed to cooperate during the examination. What does that mean? Well, for example, Defendant Hayes refused to fill out the forensic history questionnaire and refused to sign the informed consent notification form. However, our defendant did sign a form releasing his past medical records after he was informed that they would be needed for his insanity defense. Defendant Hayes also signed a document informing the jail about his physical complaints. In response to the doctor's initial questioning, Defendant Hayes uh, related his past psychiatric history. However, conveniently enough, the defendant, quote unquote, he got sick and he clammed up when asked about his actions leading up to this alleged killing of, of Bobby. Defendant Hayes was allowed to lay down in an emergency treatment room until uh, he had calmed down. But when the interview resumed and Hayes gave his account of his actions on the day that Bobby died, the doctor concluded that the defendant was only providing as much information as defendant thought was in his best interests. Defendant Hayes exhibited similar behavior at a second examination held three weeks later. According to the same doctor, defendant Hayes completely refused to interact with the center's psychologist at that time, and he would not give any sociocultural history and refused to undergo psychological testing. The prosecution later moved to bar any testimony regarding defendant's possible insanity on the basis of his failure to cooperate at the prior examinations. So, the trial court ordered one final examination at the center for defendant Hayes. The same doctor received the aid of another staff psychologist at defendant's third examination. However, all efforts to initiate meaningful discussion proved fruitless. The court concluded that defendant's behavior was wholly volitional and that defendant was competent to stand trial. This conclusion was partly based on defendant's ability to differentiate between the legal forms that appeared to be in his best interest and those forms that were not in his best interest. 
Unfortunately for all parties concerned in this case, the doctor was unwilling to make a formal conclusion regarding defendant Hayes' criminal responsibility at the time of the murder because the doctor was unable to complete the clinical examination. The trial court judge ultimately found defendant competent to stand trial. The judge also granted the prosecution's motion and barred defendant from offering evidence of insanity at his trial. Although defendant Hayes was not allowed to offer evidence of insanity, he testified at trial and the trial court felt that the issue had been implicitly raised through the defendant's mannerisms and actions at trial. The jury was instructed on the distinction between legal sanity and mental illness. The jury was also instructed that they could return four possible verdicts against defendant Hayes. It could be guilty. It could be guilty but mentally ill. It could be not guilty by reason of insanity or straight up just not guilty. The jury returned a guilty verdict and defendant was sentenced to life imprisonment. The Court of Appeals affirmed that conviction. So it gets now here to the Michigan Supreme Court and they start their ruling by clarifying that every defendant in the state of Michigan has a Michigan constitutional right to self-representation. But they go on and they elaborate by saying, The right to offer the testimony of witnesses and to compel their attendance, if necessary, is in plain terms. The right to present a defense and the right to present the defendant's version of the facts to a jury so that it may decide where the truth lies. Just as an accused has the right to confront the prosecution's witnesses for the purpose of challenging their testimony, he has the right to present his own witnesses to establish a defense. This right is a fundamental element of due process of law. Although the right to present a defense is a fundamental element of due process, our Supreme Court held it is not an absolute right. A defendant must still comply with established rules of procedure and evidence designed to assure both fairness and reliability in the final decision of guilt or innocence. The Michigan Supremes believe that this concept is at play regarding the law at hand. Michigan Codified Law 768.20A4 reads as follows. The defendant shall fully cooperate in his examination by personnel of the Center for Forensic Psychiatry and by any other independent examiners for the defense and prosecution. If he fails to cooperate, and that failure is established to the satisfaction of the court at a hearing prior to trial, the defendant shall be barred from presenting testimony relating to his insanity at the trial of the case. The Michigan Supreme Court notes this law does not run afoul of the constitutional protections provided in Article 1, Section 13. To the contrary, they hold that this law merely addresses the determination of competency to stand trial and criminal responsibility of a defendant. They ruled this law is simply designed to assure both fairness and reliability in whatever the final jury verdict might be regarding a defendant. But the Michigan Supreme Court goes on to say there is no constitutional right to assert an insanity defense. This is a legislatively created defense given to a criminal defendant by the Michigan legislature. While the law in question creates certain definitions for terms like mental illness and insanity, these definitions are expanded or limited by the wishes of the legislature. 
And if there is no constitutional right to claim insanity for a crime committed, there is no constitutional violation in allowing a judge to determine whether the defendant is appropriately cooperating in his psychological evaluations. Ultimately, our state Supreme Court held the statute involved here is clearly designed to also protect the integrity of the evidence regarding an insanity defense. Full cooperation is required. Only then will both parties and the court have a fair and accurate evaluation of the defendant's competency to stand trial and any criminal responsibility. For that reason, the Michigan Supreme Court upheld Defendant Hayes' conviction without the pleasure of a possible insanity defense. Alright, I think that's going to do it right now for episode number 34 of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. We are uh, about... 36, 37 minutes into this. We're about halfway through. I, I think we've got a really nice foundation built on what self-representation means, what the right to counsel means, what it means to fire your attorney if you so choose. The next cases that we're going to discuss on, on the rest of the, the podcast will ultimately be a little more nuanced situations, but I think they're really interesting. I think you're really going to dig them. So with that, uh, thank you for listening to the Michigan Constitution podcast. You can find me, I am either at TonySnyder.com or you can reach out to me. I'm on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Thanks and we'll talk to you next time. The Michigan Constitution podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening. Music